Yes, yeah, so as Giles has said, the uh, reading this morning comes from the first book of Samuel, chapter 21, going into chapter 22, the first five verses. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what are you at hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread to hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual. Whenever I set out, the men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he feigned insanity in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madman that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered round him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with me until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, 
do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Steve, thank you so much for reading that passage from 1 Samuel for us. Before we think about it, let's just ask God to help us make sense of it all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity here in this church um, to, to learn about all parts of the Bible, uh, well-known parts of the Bible and perhaps not so well-known parts of the Bible, parts of the Bible that are easy to make sense of and perhaps some that are a little bit more difficult and challenging. Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that you would help us to see how this set of stories is relevant to our situation here in Hove in 2017. Amen. Um, I must confess, I can't quite remember when we actually started our series of sermons on 1 Samuel, but it was a long time ago, I think. Uh, And one of the things about the book of 1 Samuel is that it is full of great, memorable stories. Stories like the story of, of David and Goliath. Stories like the story of how God spoke to that young lad Samuel in the middle of the night and called him uh, to serve him and to be a prophet and a leader of the people of Israel. And perhaps even the story that we were thinking about last Sunday, uh, a tale of intrigue and danger, a story of Jonathan putting his life on the line to help his friend, of secret signals to warn David that he was in desperate danger. Compared to those stories, the stories that Steve has read for us this morning are very, very different, aren't they? I mean, Giles alluded to this right at the start of our service. Uh, They're puzzling stories. In some ways, they're surprising stories. And in some ways, they're also quite disturbing stories. Because there's a very different tone to what's going on in this particular part of 1 Samuel from what perhaps we've been accustomed to in the past. They're different because, first of all, our hero, David, is decidedly unheroic. You sometimes hear people talking about heroes of the faith, people in the Bible who have demonstrated a high level of faith and commitment to God in spite of adversity and in spite of the pressure to give up. And David is often pretty high up on the list of heroes of the faith which are sometimes uh, put about. The lad who defeated Goliath, the successful soldier yet also a skilled musician and a man of principle. But in this chapter we're seeing a very different David. And the second surprising thing about this passage is the apparent absence of God. And that's unusual because 1 Samuel is a book that's full of God. If you think back two chapters, we read about God acting in a very decisive and remarkable way to protect David. And if you think to the chapter we were looking at last Sunday, uh, when you think about the conversations that take place between David and Jonathan throughout that chapter, they're infused with references to God and faith in God. But when you look at this chapter and the five verses of chapter 22 that we also read, well, God doesn't really seem to be there very much. There's only a reference to him right at the end. What's going on? What's caused this change of tone? Why is our heroic unheroic? Why is nobody talking about God anymore? 
And I would like to suggest to you this morning that the answer is actually very simple. The reason is that David is desperate. And in his desperation, he has given way to panic. Now, the first thing that we need to say about this sense of desperation and this sense of panic was that it was real. There were good reasons for it. Um, David was in a desperate situation. You'll remember that over the previous few chapters, David has been dealing with King Saul's increasingly erratic and violent behavior to him. Saul was being consumed with jealousy. And as the king, he was in a position really to do something about it. He had an entire army at his disposal. He had the whole apparatus of state. And David, he may have had a few friends, but essentially he was on his own. And yet throughout these chapters, you kind of get the feeling, don't you, that David and his friends really can't bring themselves to believe that the situation is quite as bad as it seems. They really can't bring themselves to believe that Saul really, really does want to murder David. And it's almost as if it's only when Saul attempts to take his own son Jonathan's life that it finally sinks in on everybody that, yes, Saul really does have murderous intent towards David and that David has no alternative but to run for his life. Now, what's surprising is that he seems totally unprepared for this. He's got no provisions. He hasn't even got a weapon with him. Saul has the whole apparatus of the state against him. If Saul was willing to attempt to murder his own son, David can expect absolutely no mercy if he falls into Saul's hands. It's a desperate situation. And desperate situations can easily give rise to panic. And as we read through the remainder of chapter 21, panic seems to be what's driving everything that David does. The first thing he does is travel to a place called Nob. Now, Saul's base was in Gibeah, and Nob was about two miles away. So it was very, very close. More to the point, it's where the tabernacle, the, the religious shrine of the people of Israel, had been relocated to. And presumably David hoped that, as well as being somewhere close at hand, that the priests would be sympathetic towards him and would give him help. Steve read the story to us, didn't he? And there are two things that stand out from it, aren't there? The first thing that stands out from the story is that Ahimelech, the, the priest who was the, the leader of the group of priests in the tabernacle, was absolutely terrified. He must have sensed that something wasn't right. He must have sensed that this was not a good situation that was developing. The second thing that stands out from this particular story is that story that David proceeds to tell Ahimelech. Would you have taken it at face value? Really? What we have here is a man saying the first thing that comes into his head and hoping for the best. You may have been there too. I'd be less than honest if I didn't say that sometimes I find myself in that sort of situation. But he gets away with it. 
For whatever reason, Ahimelech gives him food and more to the point, gives him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine champion that David had so famously killed earlier in his life. So what does David do? Well, he does the obvious thing that you would do. He goes to Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword on his back because he thinks they'll be pleased to see him. Does this strike you as a sensible course of action? One or two people are shaking their heads. Thank you. No, I don't think it was sensible either. How do you explain this series of disasters? And as we will see, they were disasters, other than by saying that David, in his desperation, has given way to panic. An often sudden overwhelming fear that produces unwise behavior. You know, one of the things that strikes me is that in our culture, we have a tendency to make light of panic. If you think about it, it's often a stock in trade of comedy. Those of you who are of my generation will remember The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. One of its catchphrases was, don't panic. Some who are a little bit younger will remember Faulty Towers. As I recall, that was 30 minutes of sustained panic. Now, make light of it if you will, but I think that most of us, if we've actually had the experience of panic, will know that there's nothing funny about it at all. It's not funny when it's happening to you at all. And there can be very few of us who haven't known a moment when they faced a crisis or a disaster occurred when they haven't found themselves lurching into panic and found ourselves like David doing or saying things that make no sense at all. And of course, for some, desperation and panic are not isolated or occasional events. There are some who, for whatever reason, face a continued struggle with unease, with desperation and with panic. And and it's no respecter of persons either, is it? You know, uh, if someone finds themselves in an unexpected or an unfamiliar situation, or perhaps exposed to a stressful situation for a long period of time, it seems no matter how strong a character they may be, no matter how capable or competent, and let's be honest, no matter how strong a Christian they may be, they can nevertheless fall victim uh, to panic. And, And that's worth underlining. It's worth underlining because there is a tendency for some people to go around saying things like Christians shouldn't experience things like panic. Let's just say that that's nonsense. Now, it may be true that in an ideal world, no one, Christians or non-Christians, should experience panic, but we don't live in an ideal world, do we? We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. We live in a rotten world where rotten things happen to people. That's the nature of the world in which we live, where people are pushed by the the rotten things that happen, to desperation and to panic. And one of the things that I find striking about the Bible is that when it writes of individuals like David, uh, people that we sometimes call heroes of the faith, it tells it the way it is. It wasn't always good. At a human level, David was a capable person, successful, cultured, At a spiritual level, the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart, but he's no too good to be true character. 
he not only faces the trouble, but the Bible, unlike some faiths, has no embarrassment in showing that at times he crumbled under the pressure that he found himself exposed to and ended up making bad choices. Up to this point, David's life had been marked by faith and trust in God. But that seems to have been forgotten. Panic has taken over. And maybe this is where you have been at one point in your life. Maybe this is where you find yourselves at the moment. This chapter reminds us that God recognizes and understands the reality of that experience. God recognizes the reality, the genuineness of that experience. I believe that we can take comfort from the fact that it's not unique to us. That it's one that we actually share with people like David, a hero of the faith. I believe that we can take comfort from the fact that this doesn't mean that for some reason we must be inferior Christians or something like that to have experienced this misfortune. Remember, it happened to David. He had to go through the same sort of experience that sadly sometimes we find ourselves having to go through as well. But having said this, we do need to recognize that desperation and panic is dangerous. No matter how understanding we may be of David's situation, the fact remains that panic led to danger. He was put in personal danger, and it also brought danger to others. The personal danger is obviously enough. Whatever possessed him to go to Gath, we'll never know. But he hadn't been there for very long before he realized that it had been a really, really bad decision. Um, Psalm 56 suggests that David found himself in some form of uh, captivity. 1 Samuel chapter 21 certainly tells us that the servants of the king of Gath, Achish, uh, remembered David well enough, and their memories of him were not terribly good ones. You'll remember that verse 11, they remind Achish, isn't this David the king of Israel, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing of in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. If ever words came back to haunt David... It must have been then, no wonder the next verse says, David took those words to heart and was very much afraid. And of his escape from our gaff, the kindest thing that we can say about it is that it was undignified and humiliating. Going to Gath was dangerous for David. And so had been his earlier visit to Nob. You remember we mentioned earlier that when David arrived there, Ahimelech, the priest, was terrified. Maybe he had a premonition that things were not going to end well. And as we will see next week, they didn't end well. Verse 7 makes us aware that David's visit was not unobserved. One of Saul's servants, a man called Doeg, was there. And the result was going to be disaster for Ahimelech and his fellow priests, and as we will also see, a cause of regret for David. But underneath this layer of physical danger, which was genuine and real enough, there was also a layer of moral and spiritual danger that David's desperation also led him open to. 
what we see in this chapter is panic driving David to say the wrong things. Now, some people have read that story that David spun to Ahimelech and tried to put a positive spin on it. I don't believe that can be done. I don't believe there was much of a word of truth in it from beginning to end. David was saying the wrong things. What we can also see in this chapter is that David is going to the wrong places. Uh, Going to the city of Gath and seeking safety among the enemies of God's people. I believe that what we can see in this chapter is not as far as we can see bringing God in any sense into the equation. There are no references to God being at the forefront of David's thinking. There are no references to anything except blind panic. There is no reference to anything that resembles faith and faith in God. What can we take away from this? We can take away from this a reminder and a warning. You know, as I was thinking about that during the course of this morning, it came back to me that probably the worst decisions that I have ever made in my life, and there have been more than one, have been at times when I've been, at the very least, under pressure, desperate to find a solution, maybe bordering on the edge of panic. And you've made decisions, for whatever reason, and they haven't been good. And here was David, under pressure, desperate, I believe panicking, and making very, very, very poor decisions. And that's going to happen to us. It goes with living. The pressure may well drive us to desperation. It may well drive us on the edge of panic. These are emotions that are very difficult to keep under control. Uh, I don't think anyone plans to panic. It's something that comes over you. But what we can do is be aware of the dangers. Be aware of the temptations that are going to hit us hard when we find ourselves in desperate circumstances facing panic. When desperation strikes us, when we feel panic taking over, be aware of the bad places that it could take us. Be be on guard against the danger of forgetting God. Be on guard against saying the wrong things. Be on guard about going to the wrong places as a way of finding escape. Now, each one of us will have their own personal idea of what those bad places might be. What bad places you might personally be inclined to go towards when you're under pressure. But we know the kind of places that people tend to go where they're desperate. They tend to go to alcohol, don't they? Uh, They tend to engage in the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake. Sometimes they find themselves engaged in, in hyperactivity, just doing lots of things because it helps to blot out whatever it is that's feeling them, making them feel pressured. They go to immorality. You know, people under pressure, people panicking, will often find themselves inclined towards having an affair or something like that. And of course, for some people, when they're under pressure, uh, they'll withdraw into themselves and shut everything else out. And none of those things are good places, are they? Did I say we need to be on our guard? 
Nothing strong enough really, isn't it? No, we need to work twice as hard at times of panic and desperation to keep close with God. Twice as hard to make sure we don't end up saying the wrong things. Twice as hard to avoid seeking comfort and escape in the wrong places. Whatever way you look at this story, David does not come out of chapter 21 with glory. But it's not the end of the story. Because while desperation and panic are real and dangerous, with God they are also, they're also redeemable. One of these things that we see in this passage is despite the poor choices David makes, he nevertheless survives. By rights, he should never have left Gath alive. But he did. By rights, David should have been sent packing by Ahimelech the priest. You'll remember that rather strange part of the story where David asks Ahimelech for food. Um, the background to that part of the story, trying to cut it very, very short, is that the only food Ahimelech had available was specially consecrated bread that were used as part of the worship ritual in the tabernacle in the religious life of the people. Uh, a fresh, fresh batch of bread was baked every day, and each day, the previous day's batch, it was given to the priests, who were the only people who were supposed to eat it at all. All that discussion about being kept from women, you know, that was nonsense, actually. I think Ahimelech was panicking, too, um, because, you know, that food was not for anyone apart from the priests. And yet Ahimelech was willing to break the rules and provide food to David at a time of need. And if you think forward to the New Testament, you may recall that Jesus spoke about this incident in Matthew 12 and suggests that Ahimelech was motivated by a higher value than blind adherence to the ritual rules of the tabernacle, that he had a commitment to the fact that God valued mercy above sacrifice. Now, who would have put that idea into Himelech's mind to be favorably disposed to David in his desperation and panic, but God himself? Even though he was in a bad place, God provided for David and didn't let him come to harm. But a second thing that we can see in this passage is that God intervenes at a specific time, at the right time, to get David back on track. After his escape from death, David goes uh, to a cave in a place called Gedalim. Adullam was on the borders of the Philistine territory in Israel, and you have the sense that it was a safe place where, where David could start to get his head straight. Uh, during this time, he's joined by other dispossessed people. And then he moves to another country, this time Moab, specifically to find a safe place where his parents can stay. And at this point, uh, David moves to a place called a stronghold, difficult to know where that is, but at that point... God breaks into David's situation. He sends a prophet called Gad to David to actually say to David, you shouldn't be here either. You shouldn't be in this stronghold. You need to be getting back to Judah. Why? You need to be getting back to Judah because you've been anointed by God to be the king of Israel. Whatever the stronger was or wasn't, 
It wasn't where David was supposed to be. He'd come through his panic. He'd gathered a group of followers. He'd provided for his parents' safety. It was time for him to be back where God wanted him. It was time to be back where fulfilling the mission that God had given him to start acting like a king. And the important thing to see is that God does, that David does what God tells him. He goes back to Judah the time of desperation, the time of panic has come to an end. And that's because God's been looking out for David during that time. And God is then getting David's head straight and getting his direction straight back to where he needed to be, back into Judah. I don't suppose David was terribly proud of himself as he looked over this part of his life. It wasn't the end watching over him behind the scenes and directing him to where he needed to be was God, still working out his plan for David's life. And that's perhaps the message that we need to take away with us in this morning. Things may have happened to us in the past. We may not have coped with them terribly well. Maybe we have given way to desperation and panic. Maybe ended up doing things that we regret, but it's not the end. Whenever we get ourselves in the, our personal equivalent of Nob or Gath or Odullam or Moab, God wants us to get back to our personal Judah, the right place where we can be at peace and fulfilling God's purpose for our lives. David may have forgotten God, but God didn't forget David. God's desire was to rescue and redeem him, That's what he did for David, and that's God's desire for us as well. For a difference view of what was obviously a dark period in David's life, uh, we can turn to the book of Psalms. There are several Psalms that relate to David's outlaw period, and two in particular, Psalms 34 and 56, that specifically relate to his disastrous visit to Gath. What both Psalms and others from the same period have in common, is that they say very little about David and an awful lot about God. The final verse of of Psalm 56 goes like this. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling that I may walk before God in the light of day. Looking back, David realized that he'd put himself in a bad place. His feet had stumbled. He had faced death, and it was God who had rescued him. It wasn't because David was strong, clever, or just plain lucky. It was because God was in the rescue business. God had redeemed the situation, put him back on the right path so that he could walk before God. Psalm 34 is even more interesting in some ways because it may have been written later and it seems to be as much a reflection of what David learned through his experience in Gath. That whatever happens, the most important thing is to keep trusting God. We're going to read part of this psalm together in just a few minutes' time, but part of it goes like this. Those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
Was this something that David fully appreciated and always put into practice after this point? No, it wasn't. David was, was very human, very like us. But he always knew what he should be doing. When we find ourselves in bad places, we don't trust in ourselves. We certainly don't trust our insects, instinct, instincts. We need to trust in our God.